Well, welcome to another episode of the podcast, the last podcast before Christmas 2019, and I just wanted to introduce you to my family. Hi, I'm Marcy Briggs. Hi, I'm Eli. Yo, what's up? I'm Manny. Hello, I'm Betty. And hey, it's Mom Julie here. And we just wanted to wish you... Merry Christmas! (laughs) Boom. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. We are bringing you a special podcast. Um, We are going to go through the highlights of 2019. I'm with my co-host, Alan Briggs. What's up, man? Merry Christmas. I'm excited for this episode. Yeah, me too. Here's what we're doing. It kind of feels like we're, you know, sitcoms would do this. They would just do a clip show and they would highlight all the different clips from that season and that's kind of what we're doing. We're you and I have like a movie trailer. Yeah, yeah, like a movie trailer and you have I you and I have combed through um some of our favorite episodes and picked out, you know, little nuggets that are great and we get to share them with our, our audience again. And if you're just joining us, like if you found the podcast, you know, a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, we've uh, we started in January, so we have 53 episodes because um, we've done some bonus episodes, but 52 each week that we got to look through and um, pick our favorite clips. So we're excited for you to kind of rehash some of the these really good conversations that we've had. So David and I are going to do two-week special. So it starts this week. We'll end the year next week on this as well. And we are basically just going to give you a couple of minutes of clips. Again, so hard to choose. Every guest we had was amazing and contributed to this conversation on health before impact. But there were a few that we just thought stuck out to us. Um, Some of these are friends of ours. Some of these we were talking to for the first time there. Some of these we had read their books. Um, But it was just an incredible year of highlights. So it's kind of like picking your favorite kid, which you should never do. But here we go. We've each picked five clips, and so we're going to bring you 10 of our favorite clips from the year. These are our 2019 highlights of our Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. All right, our first clip is a friend of mine named Myron Pierce. Myron has an incredible story. God has used him in some amazing ways, and this was a really raw episode. Uh, Myron talked to us on episode 13 about some of his past, and not just his past, but how God is turning that into a pretty incredible present and future. So listen to these raw words from my friend, Myron Pierce. For me, just a young kid growing up in the ghetto, man, you, you, you revert to the streets. And so the streets raised me, right? And, and in raising me, what, what does that, you know, what comes with that? Well, gangs, drugs, crime, you know, so by the time I'm 15, I'm dropped out of high school, 16, I'm facing 100 years in the penitentiary, 18, I'm facing 200 years in the penitentiary, and uh, only to find myself standing before the judge, March 20, uh, March, I'm sorry, yeah, March 21st is when I got arrested the second time and spent a considerable considerable amount of time in in jail. So I'm standing before the judge months later and he looks at me and tells me, you know, young man, I'm going to make an example out of you. And he did. And I was sentenced to 14 or 30 years in prison. 
plus the two to three year stint that I wasn't done with. So I'm walking out the courtroom at the age of 19 uh, with a 16 to 33 year sentence. This is in 2002. And so I've, I've had quite the journey. And man, along that journey, uh, I met Jesus the, the night I was arrested in 2002 and uh, fell on my knees, man, and, and uh, prayed a big prayer. And just said, hey, God, I'm destroying my life. But if you change me, I serve you for the rest of my life. And so that really began my journey, Alan, to faith, my journey of understanding what the gospel was, its implications for me as a young African-American man awaiting prison. And so eventually I went to prison and spent a considerable amount of time there, man. Wasn't supposed to get out of prison until 2018. And I had an encounter with God in prison. And God really spoke to my heart and told me, I'm going to I'm going to get you out of prison and you're going to plant churches and you're going to be a pastor. And so I had no reference for that because I didn't grow up in church. In fact, I had a a disdain for church because of the perception I had on uh, being judged and, and so forth. And so when God really spoke to my heart, he he really put a dream in me that I will, you know, return back to North Omaha to the inner city and where I was selling dope, I'd now be selling hope, you know, for free. Right. And so spent some time in prison, man, a miracle happened. I ended up out before um, my time. I got out in 2008 and uh, man, just the journey of going to Bible college and meeting a guy who introduced me uh, to ministry, who hired me straight out the penitentiary. And uh, right after I got out the penitentiary, about three months later, Alan, man, I, we planted Bridge Church in North Omaha, Nebraska, uh, which literally is in the same neighborhood I, I grew up in as a gangbanger. All right, David, your turn. Give us one of your highlights. So we talk a lot about Sabbath at Stay Fort Designs because not only has it been important to us personally, but we just believe that It's a gift from God that allows us to live and lead healthy. And one of these conversations around Sabbath was the one that Alan had with A.J. Swoboda. And A.J. wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath. And it's this idea that Sabbath undermines an established system in our culture, which is that of production. We're constantly bowing to the idol of more, 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 never ceasing. And that Sabbath actually yanks us out of that kind of rat race, that hamster wheel, so to speak. And so it's awesome conversation with AJ. And so please enjoy this clip with AJ Swoboda. And the idea of rest in general, I find is quite hostile in the church in general. I mean, I, that, the reason that I wrote this book was actually birthed out of a story from about five years ago when uh, we'd planted the church five years in and, and the church was just tired. Everybody, the, the whole parish just felt really tired to me. And I decided to, to preach on the Sabbath uh, from, from the front, preach for about, I think, three or four weeks. And I preached uh, on this idea of rest. And I, listen, man, I've, I've preached on things that have made people mad. I mean, I've preached on, you know, sexuality. I've preached on polyamory. I've preached on politics. I've, I've preached a whole sermon against smoking weed once. And I, I've made people mad. And I preached for four weeks on the Sabbath. And I don't think we've ever had more people leave the church. The The elders after after that wanted to meet with me, the leaders in the church. And 
it dawned on me as I was in a, an elder meeting. This was the moment I knew I needed to write on this. I was in an elder meeting and it dawned on me that if I broke nine of the 10 commandments, if I stole money from the church, I'd probably lose my job. If I, um, you know, if I committed adultery, I'd probably lose my job. If I killed, some, if I murdered somebody, I'd definitely lose my job. And it dawned on me that if I don't take a day of rest, which is one of the 10 commandments, if I don't take as the fourth commandment says, take a day of rest, uh, I'll probably, as a pastor, I'll probably get a, get a raise. And it dawned on me, this is like the one thing in the heart of the old Testament that we celebrate breaking and our people are dying because of it. I mean, it, I mean, I think, I think teenage suicide rates are skyrocketing because teenagers don't know how to turn their phones off. I think there's a direct connection. All right, Alan, next clip for you. What do you got for us? And my next selection was Sandra Dalton-Smith. She is a fascinating person. Uh, She comes actually from the medical field, and she explores burnout, overwhelm, um, extreme fatigue in this clip. And actually several people, including one person who I coach, said this episode changed my life. I think it is incredibly simple, incredibly practical, but really, really hard to see the things that burnout is actually doing to our physical bodies. So not only does she really know what she's talking about, but this is such a practical episode and literally can help save pieces of your life. So without further ado, here's David's conversation with Sandra Dalton-Smith. It's probably maybe three or four years into my practice that I started having these same symptoms. And it really shifts when you're the patient because then you start looking at it from a different standpoint because you can you can see just the ins and outs of that particular disorder. And so when I got to my own stage of burnout, that's when things really changed because I knew that that wasn't how the human body was supposed to feel. You know, I had enough medical background knowledge to know that it has to be better than that, that the body is trained to be able to heal itself. And so if the mind, the body, the spirit, all of these things weren't getting to a place of wholeness, then there was something that was missing. And that's the journey that really led me down looking at rest and Now, what I do is whenever I have someone who comes into my practice and they say I'm tired, I no longer just jump straight into all the tests. I do what's necessary to rule out the big things. But then I start having that conversation with them about really what type of rest do you need? What type of tired are you? Are you spiritually tired? Are you emotionally, sensory, you know, creative? Where is the fatigue coming from? Because all of it's going to make you say you feel tired. But really, until you identify which type of fatigue you have, you can't correct it. Hmm. How have people responded to that kind of new line of questioning and digging into those symptoms? Have they responded well to that? Yes, because most of them, I'm kind of their last resort. <laughs> I, I get so many people who are who come and they say, you know, I've tried everything. I've been on the sleep aids. And yes, I can I can go to sleep, but I'm still tired even after getting eight hours. And to me, that is a huge clue that it is not just physical rest that you're needing because sleep should help heal the physical, but it's not going to heal the the spiritual or the sensory or the social. It's not even going to touch on any of those things. So when someone tells me that and I give them kind of a bigger picture, kind of the, the, from the, from the clouds view of what's going on, that's when they start seeing the, how it connects. And it's been wonderful to just see how it's helped people within 
things that you wouldn't think rest would affect, like their marriages, strengthening their relationships by learning what social rest is, or even increasing their ability to be creative and innovative in their jobs to help them get promotions because their creativity has peaked because they now understand what creative rest does for them. All right, David, give us your next selection. The next clip that we want to share is from Rebecca Lyons, which that was episode 45. And Rebecca wrote a book all about anxiety and this concept of trading stress and anxiety for a life of peace and purpose. It is another raw episode where she has her own experience really with crippling anxiety in her life. This is something that doesn't get talked about all that often in leadership circles, but it's a crucial conversation for leaders to wrestle with. So enjoy this small clip from Alan's conversation with Rebecca Lyons. God created order in rhythm and he created circadian rhythm. And he said, basically, before the the industrial revolution and before the digital revolution, we actually functioned as humans in rhythm. We had to wake up when the sun rose because there's a blue light that emits from a sunrise that tells your body to wake up. And we went to sleep when the sun set because in a sunset, there's natural red light, which is melatonin for your body. So God says, I made your bodies. I know what you need. I've actually created order and rhythm boundaries for you to stay within. And this is for your flourishing. This is for your health. This is for your humanity and your dignity and your vibrancy. All these things are for your good. I've given you food from the ground for your flourishing. But now we've got food that's not from a plant. It's made in a plant. Now we've got devices that tell us never to turn ourselves off. We've got machines, even in the industrial revolution, that were never turned off because it actually um, killed the efficiency. So they always were kept on. The problem is our bodies are not machines. We are not AI. We are actually humans who have to stop. We can't be always on in the workplace. And so because we are carrying these things and we're looking at these devices and we're told by society that our worth is only as good as our latest accomplishment, and we now have this public popularity contest for all the work of our hands to be on display in social media so that we can compete and compare, we never feel adequate. We always feel like we're missing out. And so we work double down, our work doubles down to try to get us there. And here's, here's what happens. Our body keeps the score and it just says, no, I'm done. I cannot sustain whatever emotional trauma you're trying to withheld. Mm. Like I'm done, I'm out. And that's why what's happening is like, as we spin out and spiral out, our minds can't be the boss of our bodies any longer. Our mind gets the reserves of whatever little sleep we got last night, you know, four hours, three hours, six hours. But eventually our bodies just burn out. And with that burnout, if our identity is rooted in our work, then there's depression that ensues because we can no longer muscle and stomach the pace we were doing before. So then this leads to a lot of question, this existential crisis that's coming in midlife from a lot of men and women. Does my life have meaning anymore? Does it have significance? Is life worth living? Like we entertain suicide. We entertain... 
loneliness and isolation, even though we're so connected on a phone, we're actually more disconnected. We're talking to, we're talking to everyone, but connecting with no one. 46% of us believe that we have high feelings of loneliness and 20, I think it's 27% say we have not one real friend. So we, are, we have lost what it means to be human in every way. And this is a, in my mind, this book is a reminder to getting back to that. What, what does it mean to be human? What do we need as humans? What did God establish for humanity? And how do we take advantage of that? How do we reorder our life? Like kill the life that's currently spinning out of control and rebuild a life with intention. All right, Alan, we've heard some really, really good clips. Who do you have for us next? All right, the next one we have dialed up for you is Liz Wiseman. Now, I love the book Multipliers, and I've followed Liz ever since I read this. I feel like she's speaking my language and the language of so many leaders. We absolutely need what she brings um, within the church. Uh, she's been very influential to the business community, and um, she is just so sharp. So, Liz, this was a great conversation. I loved chatting with her leaders of any kind, you can pick some multiplicative wisdom bombs out of this conversation that I had with Liz Wiseman. So, of course, you know, I realized that the second answer is way worse than the first. And, and he doesn't get it because, see, his orientation is from himself outward. How do I project my thinking on other people? How do I share my ideas with everyone else? How do I get other people to see it the way I see it? They tend to have a very um, self-orientation. And the multiplier has a very, very different logic. Instead of thinking that no one's going to figure it out without me, they hold this belief that fundamentally people are smart and are going to figure it out. Like you don't even have to think that you're surrounded by geniuses. It's just reminding yourself that people are capable and actually that people want to do a really good job. And so their team doesn't become dependent on them. You know, their job is to provoke, to unleash, to be a, a, a platform, a spark, or maybe a support, it's a little, probably a little bit of a support and a little bit of a poke, you know, to their team. They see themselves very differently. Their orientation is on the people around them, which is why they get this um, multiplier effect. You know, sometimes I look at it just with the basic math, like what, what do you want more of in your organization? 10% more of the manager, or what if the manager could get 10% more ideas and capability an effort or whatever from the people around her. Like I'll take the second option because the numbers are so much greater. The sheer numbers. I mean, not even to, to mention what's being missed out on morale. All right, David, who's next? This next episode uh, has been really influential for our whole team. And it was your conversation with Steve Cuss, who wrote Managing Leadership Anxiety. And Steve's message of 
really this holistic approach of dealing with the anxiety that we have as leaders. And he gets into deep and heavy psychology, as well as just deep spiritual truths of how we are to approach this topic of anxiety. He has a wonderful, rich Australian accent, and uh, that's not definitely not the reason we chose this clip, but it's one of the reasons. This episode is amazing, and we're excited to share just a piece of it. So my very first encounter uh, was a family who had lost the, the matriarch of the family. She had died unexpectedly in surgery, and I'm 24, totally green, and I walk into the intensive care, and there's about 15 family members just screaming. So I had one family member was just rhythmically hitting her head against the wall, one lady was vomiting into a rubbish bin. It, it was it was unbelievable. And uh, that's when I first started to notice that when a leader doesn't know what to do, we get anxious. And our effort to do something has more to do with maintain, with managing our own anxiety than actually serving the person. So I, I didn't learn this for a while, but looking back on that encounter, that was the moment that really showed me as a leader my entrepreneurial skills are useless. My wits are useless. My charm is useless. I actually have no tools in this moment. And, and that feeling of not knowing what to do, it's suddenly you, can't, you get this internal pressure to do something. And I think that's why some church leaders simply can't be with people in pain because we're too uncomfortable ourselves. So I, what I learned is if I can name all the pressure I'm feeling inside, and you know what I've written about in this book is I've actually diagnosed about 24 sources of internal anxiety that every leader faces. Uh, if I can name that, I can actually be more present to people and also to God. So I, I believe anxiety is actually a spiritual force that competes uh, for the same space that God resides in. So when you're anxious, it's really difficult to be aware that God is with you because you're so busy attending to your own anxiety. And a lot of leaders I know don't even know they're anxious. They actually think they're being productive, for example. Okay, Alan, let's keep this train going. Um, who is your next clip from? I feel like this is an NBA draft that we're doing here, but oh well. Anyway, my next pick is Todd Henry. Todd Henry is somebody who I've tracked with for a long time. And I think this is the best stuff out there on dialing into people's creative wiring and actually being able to lead creatives. It's such a unique task to lead a team of creatives. He wrote the book, Herding Tigers. I talked to him about that, about creativity, management, and what we need to be doing to push the ball down the field to bring the very best out of our team. These are some highlights that I had from episode four with my conversation with Todd Henry. You know, there's this myth that exists about creative people, highly creative, talented people, that they just want complete freedom. Just don't fence me in. Just give me complete freedom. Uh, and that's not really true. While they may express that, the reality is that creative people need boundaries. They they crave boundaries, actually. They need to understand how to channel their creative energy into something productive and meaningful. Uh, and so as a leader of an organization, you need to help them 
have that kind of stability that they need to be able to channel their energy effectively, meaning clarity of process, clarity of expectations, uh, you know, the, the rules of the game aren't going to shift halfway through, you know, things like this are really important because if somebody spends their blood, sweat and tears building a project, creating something, making something, designing something, and then two weeks in, you decide, you know what, it's not really doing it for me. Let's let's try something else. Well, that's incredibly demoralizing to somebody who's just spent a big chunk of who they are trying to create something they thought you would like that would meet your expectations. And then suddenly the ground shifted beneath their feet. And so creative people need stability. They need some clarity and predictability about process, but they also need to be challenged. Creative people want to be pushed. They want to be uh, in, in many ways, you want to be uh, extended an invitation to take risks, to try new things, to explore the fringes of their identity as an artist. And so they need to have that kind of permission from you and that kind of faith from you as a leader to take risks, to try things. They want to know that you see things in them that they don't even see in themselves yet. So uh, just saying, I see you, I see what you're capable of, uh, earns a tremendous amount of trust from the person that you're leading. Uh, so, you know, they, we have to instill some degree of challenge as well into our organizations. Now, the problem is that stability and challenge exist in tension with one another. So as we increase the amount of challenge people feel as artists or creatives, um, we tend to destabilize the organization. You know, we're running, we're pushing, we're trying new things, we're experimenting, it's risky. We're not even certain where we're going to land. Well, that has a destabilizing effect organizationally. And as you increase stability, you tend to decrease the amount of challenge because things become more predictable. They become more steady. So the trick for a leader is to understand for each individual on your team, what is the right mix of stability and challenge? What is the right mix of each of these for individuals and for the team at large. And by the way, that's going to change over time, perhaps. Um, there may be somebody right now who needs more stability from you. They need more frequent checkpoints. They need to understand the, the rules of the game. They need to understand the objectives more clearly, more often, whereas somebody else might you, know, you just wind them up and set them, let them go, and they just run with it, and they're totally fine with that. Um, and so it's incumbent upon you as a leader to understand the mix of stability and challenge that each individual on your team needs in order to be able to produce their best work. And if you don't, then you're likely to end up in an organization that is irrationally angry, uh, that feels stuck, that's complaining often, that feels lost, um, simply because you don't have your finger on the pulse of stability and challenge. All right, David, let the good stuff continue. Give us your next pick. Well, my next pick is someone that you know very, very well. You've been able to invest in his life, but he is now investing in so many people's life through uh, his coffee and his just knowledge and wisdom on hospitality. And so this next highlight is from the episode with Tyler Hill, who talks about meaningful hospitality. Tyler has a love and a desire and quite frankly, he's a ninja when it comes to hospitality. And this is just a highlight of our episode with Tyler Hill. They'll say, what's one $15 luxury you can't live without? And, and, the, and the person interviewing just thinks it's just a question about the interview. Okay, So they might say, I can't live without Starbucks or whatever you know, this, or my Burt's Bees chapstick, cannot live without my chapstick. On their first day of orientation, they'll get a package of Burt's Bees chapstick. 
Now, so what does that do? Now, that's a good gift. That's really, really cool. But what that really is doing is saying we pay attention and we listen to the little details. And not only do we listen to the little details, but we follow through and we act on it. So that's a part of employee engagement where it makes the employee feel loved, seen, taken care of. That's humanity, right? But also it shows them an example of how to actually do it practically. So now they have a tangible example that they can take with them into the workplace. You see, here's the thing is when you show your team members hospitality, they'll show your guests hospitality. So in order to get your team members bought in, I need to be hospitable to them. Mm. If they don't understand what hospitality is because I haven't shown it to them, then they're not going to know how to show it to my guests the way I want them to. So I'll spend just as much time being hospitable to my team members as I will teaching them how to be hospitable to the guests. And so employee engagement to me is engaging them, is creating an experience for them. If I want my guests to have an experience, have I created an experience for my team members? Is it fun to work at Loyal? Do my team members feel seen, heard, loved, taken care of? Do they feel human or do they feel like robots working for some company? And so employee engagement is all about trying to mimic what you want for the guests. And then, then and only then after you've hired and given your employees a hospitable experience, will your employees provide the great experience for your guests. Okay, Alan, we've heard some amazing highlights so far. We've got a couple more. Who is your next uh, guest that you want to highlight? All right, so the last highlight that I've got for episode one of 2019 highlights is John Tyson. Um, John's just an incredible guy, doing incredible work in New York City, incredible work with his son and helping others to, to raise men. You'll hear from him on the podcast in 2020 as well. But I absolutely loved your interview with John Tyson. So many takeaways, but here's just a few minutes, some golden nuggets from David's conversation with John Tyson. Every leadership book I read had the same talk or the same chapter by the author or the speaker, and it was this. Uh, ministry almost destroyed me. Hmm. And, and, uh, and so they all advocated for sustainable rhythms and practices and um, all talked about how they violated those and what it cost them. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I am the the book of Proverbs definition of a fool if every leader I respect is saying the same thing and I don't build this into my life. And so, you know, my wife and I just consciously decided in our early 20s that we were going to have daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms of sustainability and that we were just going to stick to them no matter what. And, um, I, I, you know, I've, I've been through a lot in leadership. I've had my heart broken. I've been crushed by the church. I, I've been through many, many traumatic things. But I can honestly say that, you know, I really do feel close and intimate with Jesus. My marriage is strong. Uh, I feel like I can run at the current pace I'm running at, which is, you know, a busy life with real responsibility. But I feel like I could do this for another 30 years. And it's only the grace of God hearing those warnings and heeding them early that, that has uh, enabled us to be where we are. Um, one of the things we tried to do is to build an ecosystem of thriving outside of our ministry front. So habits, places, practices, hobbies, things that we love that enable, that they just enable like buoyancy and life and joy to flow into the intensity of ministry. So we've basically got, 
you know, afternoon Sabbath walks through different neighborhoods. We have nature hikes that we do. We have favorite little towns in the Hudson Valley that we go to. And so we just like build a whole, we've worked very, very hard to build a, a giant web of delight around the pressures of ministry in New York City. And um, we've tried to bring our team into that, our friends into that, our church into that. And I think a lot of people um, have found that very life-giving as a part of our community. All right, David, what's your last selection of this episode? That is going to be Dave Ferguson. So you had a conversation with Dave, who's been just a massive influence on church leaders, church planting. He is one of the founders of the Exponential Conference, which influences just thousands of, of church leaders all across the country. And so you got to talk to him about his book called Hero Makers. So let's close this episode with a highlight from Dave Ferguson and his book, Hero Maker. Bob's a guy who made a lot of money in the cable TV business. And um, he called his halftime experience when his only son kind of suddenly and tragically died. He was in his early 20s. And um, he said that was when he went from trying to be successful to being significant. I think you could also say that's also when it went from trying to be the hero to being a hero maker. Because if you looked at Bob's life, that was when the, he began to change his own practices. And one of the very simple things he did was, um, and, and everybody, everybody listening, if you want to make this shift, here's a simple practice you can take away and do. He had like a little wallet card, he called it. And it was basically a little card he would keep in his wallet. And he'd have 10... 11, 12 names of people on it. And those were people that he was financially and relationally investing in. And it was really very much behind the scenes, but he was doing everything he could to make them successful. And Bob had this saying, um, and you've probably heard this, but he would say, my fruit grows on other people's trees. <laughs> and I, I mean, I've adopted it as my own, but I think that, could, that should be the mantra of every hero maker. My fruit grows on other people's trees. And, um, and I got to be one of those people he invested in, and I'm super grateful for it. Well, guys, thanks for joining us for this episode. Great news. We've got 10 more highlights for you. It'll come in next week, but we want to say Merry Christmas. Thank you guys for your investment in so many leaders this year. We hope you're getting some rest. You're getting some quality family time over the holidays, and hey, while you're at it, might as well eat a few Christmas cookies. Enjoy, relax, and we'll be back next Thursday with our last episode of 2019. Shot, shot, we ain't